Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, your need-to-know guide on news and politics. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me to assess the week ahead is Doomsday Watch host Arthur Snell. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? I'm very well, Jarv. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Although, unfortunately, less good that we're going to have to talk about a story that we always have to talk about, which is the the government not being very nice on immigration, as seems Mm -hmm. to be a a default at the moment. So the the migrant barge story is continuing to court controversy. And it seems that the government really just wants it to, to me, to be honest, for the most part. Does it actually look like people will will be placed on the Bibby Stockholm barge this week? Well, it seems as though that point has been reached. You've had the uh, immigration minister... Uh, Helen Dines this morning saying that she's excited by this fact, which tells you a little bit about what goes on inside these people's heads. Um, And there's been various other reports that certain individuals have received notifications. So migrants currently in Britain uh, have received notification that they're about to be transferred to the barge. So it looks like that, that that particular sort of watershed is about to be reached. At the moment, do we know sort of how many people are going onto the barge? I know, to me, it doesn't sound like they're they're not going to fill it immediately. To be honest, so is it kind of you know they want to just show the fact they are doing this, even if it's only a, a handful of people who will be moved onto it? Yeah, I think this is a bit like that uh, flight to Rwanda, which at one point you know was down to one person. Yeah, uh, obviously, I'm not saying that there may only be one person on the barge, but I suspect it'll be very few people. So the big debate around fire safety, and let's not forget, we had a situation where the Deputy Prime Minister of Britain last week was accusing the fire brigade of, um, you know, just sort of acting as some kind of political outfit rather than you know, <laughs> trying, to, trying to stop people burning to death, which I think in the light of Grenfell, that's, that's quite a take. But I, the, the fire safety concerns are likely to relate to uh, basically to overcrowding. And and if you imagine, if you had a barge with hundreds of people on, there's only one way in and out, you you know, in the in the worst case scenario of some kind of fire, that would be incredibly dangerous. Now, of course, if this thing only has a few people on board, then perhaps it's much less uh, risky. When it comes to the, the safety side of things, uh, you know, obviously people like Robert Jenrick are in, insisting on it being safe. How much weight can we really give to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the point here, very, there are so many similarities with the Rwanda policy that 
the point is to have a barge with some people on it so they can say, look, we've got a barge. Barges aren't nice. You know, these people are not allowed on dry land. And whether or not any significant numbers are placed on this floating vessel, you know, that has any significant impact on the many thousands of people stuck in hotels, obviously is is much less important. This is all about sort of representation and appearance. So when you look at this question around safety and all the other hurdles, it seems very clear that what's been happening is the Home Office has been pushing this nakedly political agenda which is we have to have this thing that shows that we're being nasty to immigrants. And then the different bodies that exist to look after basically kind of regulatory adherence, whether we're talking about fire safety or healthcare or other questions like that, they're the ones saying to the Home Office, well, hang on, have you checked this? Have you checked that? And of course, given the toxic politics of modern Britain, the government's response is not to say, oh, how glad I am we have professionals whose job it is to look after, you know, basic issues of of regulation. They say, oh, this is the woke agenda preventing us from being horrible to immigrants. Well, yeah, I mean, I saw Oliver Dowden say over the weekend in a in a Telegraph piece that the, the howls of outrage over the situation should stop. But he cannot possibly want the howls of outrage to stop, can he? Surely this is exactly what they want. None of their policies work without there being some howls of outrage from people like ourselves. Oh, totally. And 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 of course, if if you're if you're genuinely concerned about howls of outrage, uh, which is an intriguing phrase if you keep saying it, um, <laughs> then, then you don't you don't write articles in the Daily Telegraph, do you? So I mean, this is as I say, this is all performative. It is not about dealing with a number of migrants in a certain place. It's about having a thing which is like flying people to Rwanda or like today's special story, flying people to Ascension Island. On the other side of things, what do you think to Labour's messaging on this? I mean, I feel quite a lot like I've I've had a lot of their serious medicine and I would I would like some sugar now and then start saying some stuff that I that I agree with. Yeah, so you've got Stephen Kinnock saying that they'd carry on using the barge. I mean, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because on one level, you could say, well, obviously, if you elect a Labour government, and of course, nothing's nothing's set in stone, but that looks very likely given polls. If you elect a Labour government, things don't magically change overnight. And the problem of more than a decade of failed asylum policies doesn't fix itself overnight. No. So on one level, you could say, well, there's nothing nothing to see here. But what's interesting, and I think what you're alluding to there, is the way that they appear to be slightly leaning into this. They're sort of, they want people to hear them say, oh, yes, we will still have to use the barge, where after all, what we're observing here is that the barge on itself really makes very little difference to the overall issue. Um, yeah. So I, I think this is, you know, if you want sugar, don't have Keir Starmer as leader of the Labour Party. Sugar was Jeremy Corbyn promising free everything forever. And, yeah. you know, w- we saw how that ended up. I think there is this debate. And I, I do, you know, being very old, I remember it quite vividly from the late 90s around this idea that, well, look, if I'm 20 points ahead in the polls, surely we can actually articulate an authentically left wing platform. Uh, rather than go ultra cautious, sort of hover in the centre ground. But Blair didn't do it. And we, we could argue whether or not that was ultimately a success. But it certainly was a success in the 1997 election. And Starmer seems to be in that respect, uh, queuing quite closely to sort of Blair's model. Do you think uh, Rishi Sunak, so he's going to be coming back to to all of this? 
Is he just going to wish he could stay on holiday doing Taylor Swift themed spin classes forever? as he apparently did the other day. Yeah, well, I think but before I answer your question, I just want to, who the hell goes on holiday and then gets up at 7am to do a spin class, let alone a Taylor Swift? I, I mean, what, what yeah. kind of a weirdo does that on holiday? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I can't imagine what he would do for fun on holiday, really, Richard Sunak. I can't, I can't imagine him having a hobby of any particular kind. I mean, you know, like Boris Johnson had his sort of painting that he oh, yeah, half-heartedly did, but yeah. I can't imagine Sunak doing a sort of, you know, watercolour. It'd be a still life of some really expensive gadgets he'd bought online, wouldn't it? Which, it would uh, be, or, or or maybe playing Monopoly because it involves making huge <laughs> amounts of money through exploitative transactions. I'm sure he'd, he'd like that. Uh, but to go back to your question, yes, you could argue that at the sort of macro level, the, the the kind of really disastrous sort of news stories for the government have slightly tailed off, and I, and I think you do get into this kind of silly season stuff. There haven't been any mega scandals, you know, there, there hasn't been any Tory MP arrested for rape for a few weeks. So in, in that regard, he, he's, he's probably thinking it's not a terrible time to be coming home. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that is, <laughs> it's a damning indictment of the party, isn't it, actually, really, that it's, yeah, you probably are correct. Although I would like to imagine that in a normal world, this would be a complete shit show for any prime minister but i i suppose not quite on the <laughs> on the <laughs> on the barometer that we have now this episode is brought to you by la quinta by window your work can take you all over the place like texas you've never been but it's going to be great because you're staying at la quinta by window their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead and after you can unwind using their free high-speed wi-fi Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Moving away from the domestic news we've been discussing. So Russia, over the weekend, targeted a a blood transfusion unit with a guided missile. And uh, in response, Zelensky said, this war crime alone says everything about Russian aggression. Arthur, what do we know about this attack? And at the moment, what are you keeping an eye on in the the conflict and invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, so um, this is in Kharkiv. And uh, given that these are guided precision weapons that Russia is using, you know, they don't get to say, oh, this was a bit of a bit of a mistake. And of course, they have struck medical centers before they did it in Mariupol, famously, you know, the maternity hospital, those awful pictures. Uh, and they did it in Syria repeatedly. So th- this is how Russia does war. Uh, it, it does it by uh, exacting incredible pain on the civilian population uh, that it's targeting. The wider context here, of course, you've seen uh, Ukraine have a series of successful drone strikes, both on Russian land territory in Moscow, but also a big um, tanker ship, a Russian tanker ship in in the Black Sea, around the area of the Kerch Bridge. And the Ukrainians are showing the Russians that that with their increasingly sophisticated drone technology, they can reach Russian targets, whether it's at sea or on land. There's also two two bridges onto Crimea, not the, the Kerch Bridge, but two other ones were hit yesterday. So Russia does have the need to continue to strike in its own, obviously, I'm, I'm from their perspective, they have the need to continue to strike 
uh, civilian and so-called soft targets in Ukraine because uh, th- th- they have to sort of demonstrate that they can retaliate a- against these hits. Well, my fears, I, I see Putin saying, you know, promising revenge for the these drone attacks. It doesn't seem like he's exactly acting in a rational way as it is already. But how much more can he escalate what he's doing? Or is it becoming increasingly desperate because you know the resources diminishing and also it's been a pretty full-on assault already hasn't it is it are we going to now start seeing more things like this of really targeting you know the sort of things you simply shouldn't target in warfare i think we will see that i think obviously ukraine has developed very sophisticated air defense so one of russia's problems is that the things that were getting through before aren't getting through now you've got these iranian shahid drones which right at the beginning proved quite effective from a russian perspective they're now almost all being shot down even some of russia's supposedly cutting edge missile has been intercepted but still things get through such as in in these strikes and of course russia can sometimes use artillery if if they're within range. And and Russia has, I wouldn't say unlimited, but very extensive artillery stocks. So I, I, I think the issue exists on both sides about whether or not you can sustain your reserves. And the Ukrainians are very dependent on, you know, Western countries supplying them, you know, Britain's storm shadow missiles being a a well-known example, US Patriots, all kinds of other bits of kit. And for Russia, well, they're less able to get foreign assistance, but they certainly have vast uh, reserves, particularly of artillery. So I, I think for as long as both sides have things that they can fire into the air, that will continue to be a feature of this conflict. What do you think to, to Putin's kind of mindset at the moment? Does it seem increasingly rash with how, he, how he's acting? And might that also explain his treatment of Alexei Navalny too? Because he seems to be not kind of secure in his position, you know, post what happened with Wagner, and then these increasingly desperate actions within the war. Does Putin seem vulnerable like that? And is that why he's also going to be cracking down even harder on any detractors that he can? Well, he certainly needs to demonstrate his strength. Yeah. I think another thing that's important here, which is probably weighing on his mind, is China. So Saudi Arabia hosted a sort of Ukraine peace summit over the weekend, and and it was Zelensky himself attended. Obviously, Russia did not attend, but it was Saudi trying to sort of be the diplomatic player bridging the gap between Ukraine and, and the sort of global South countries. And very importantly, China attended this summit. Now, obviously, without Russia in the room, you could say, well, the summit is a bit meaningless. But the attendance of China at a forum where Ukraine is expressing uh, the need for to respect territorial integrity is a bit of a blow to Russia because whilst uh, China hasn't you know diverged from that basic principle, uh, they've certainly given the Russians you know the belief that 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 this so-called friendship partnership without limits that you know China remains Russia's sort of one big friend in the international community. Yeah. So I, I imagine that. That Russia, Russia, and Putin in particular feels very isolated, uh, and of course, as you say, there are lots of internal tensions. Uh, most recently, this this Wagner mutiny still, you know, quite bizarre that the person who led a mutiny is uh, apparently free to sort of roam around Russia, whereas Alexei Navalny, whose crime is to speak publicly in opposition 
uh, to the leader of the country finds himself uh, in prison for, for decades. With the way that Russia is acting at the moment, how is the UK reacting to all of this? And are there any further developments in you know, sanctions or the ways we are we are pushing back against Russia or supporting Ukraine? Or has it kind of hit a point where it's you know, we are doing what we're doing and that's kind of staying at a level and that's about as much as we will we will do? In terms of the sort of military support, there's there's a debate ongoing about the uh, Ukrainian would-be F-16 pilots. How will they be trained? Uh, and, you, and you've seen with this that the, the Americans were, were pretty reluctant for the Ukrainians to be offered these aeroplanes. And, and they basically said to European countries who, who, are base, who are offering their older F-16s to Ukraine, they basically said, okay, fine, well, you need to train them. And, and this isn't a bad case study of where Europe uh, does fall into the trap of sort of making these grand pronouncements, but actually is still over-reliant on America for all kinds of backup. And, and now that it's down to Europe to train these pilots, it's not 100% clear how that will work. Um, on broader terms, you know, there was a very interesting article, uh, I think it was the week before last, in the New York Times about the degree to which you have these Russian oligarchs living in the UK who are sanctioned, but they then apply for licenses to allow them, you know, living expenses. And that sounds sort of reasonable until you find out that these licenses allow them basically to live exactly the same lifestyle as they lived before with, you know, vast houses and retinues of servants and private jets and limousines and all the rest of it. And then you scratch your head and you think, well, what's the point of these sanctions? So I wonder if that's another area where under political pressure, the UK might be able to double down a little. Well, seeing as in your last answer, you mentioned America, let's turn our attention there slightly and talk about Donald Trump, unfortunately, as we always have to. Uh, one of those many characters that just simply won't go away. Uh, the, the drama surrounding him continues to rumble on. Is he due to get himself in more trouble because he just won't won't shut up over his social media posts? It seems very likely. And of course, he's effectively kind of threatening witnesses. And any normal person who has been arraigned before a court is under very heavy restrictions. And, you know, the, the risk of contempt of court, you can be thrown in jail. I think Donald Trump knows that even with all the, the sort of pressure that's on him legally, it is very unlikely that anyone's going to try to uh, incarcerate him for contempt of court. So he's doing what he always does, which is pushing the envelope as far as possible and, and effectively uh, stretching uh, the US justice system to breaking point. Yeah, it feels like he's always playing sort of political and legal chicken, isn't he? But at the same time, that allows him to kind of shift the Novelton window that gives him all sorts of space. With this, though, in, in terms of the politics of it, is he is he creating a bit of a risk there? Because whilst he is using things like saying that him being convicted of this or being in the dock over this is you know, validation and will make sure he definitely wins in 2024, is it allowing other people to kind of jump on the bandwagon but from the other side? So, for example, Mike Pence, who seems to be, to me, politics's least charismatic man, is actually kind of been able to get quite a lot of attention by firing back to Trump. So, you know, could someone like him actually come out on top because of all of this? Well, I think that if you look at the polling, there is nobody anywhere close to Trump in probability of being nominated for the Republicans in the next general election. And and that's what's so weird, because I, to, to people outside America, you think, 
you know, Trump's this pantomime figure, he's ridiculous, and now he's he's probably going to be convicted as a criminal, surely uh, Republicans are going to turn against him. Well, they're not. And we could discuss for, for a whole series of programs yeah. why that might be the case. <laughs> but the, I suppose the big question is whether or not him actually being convicted of a crime would change that calculus. It doesn't look like it would, because it seems to me that the lesson with Trump People have been saying literally since he came down that golden escalator, well, he's gone one step too far now. You know, normal people are going to turn away from him. It hasn't happened. So as much as we would want it to be the case, I fear that he's going to be running for election and he might be doing it from inside jail. And he might find for his politics of resentment and of of kind of um, a sort of vicious... Uh, attacks against the so-called deep state and all the rest of it, that doing it from a jail cell is an incredibly effective platform. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the the imagery of what he wants to convey, it's about as much of a, a martyr as he could make of himself, isn't it? Indeed. Uh, finally, Arthur, the, the coup in Niger, could you explain what's going on to me there? Because I'm not fully up on it, and I'm sure you're much more au fait than I am. Well, I'm, I'm going to shamelessly direct all listeners to my Substack where I wrote about it uh, yesterday. <laughs> but to save you the time of reading that, if, you, if you're time poor, Niger is a very poor country, landlocked country. Much of it is the Sahara Desert. Uh, it was the last country in the Sahel region that had a strong alliance with, with the West, particularly France and the United States, France being the former colonial power and has a sort of tradition of continued operations in that region. There was a military coup there, which is following a pattern that's happened across that region. And that follows years of instability, increasing terror attacks, but also much more fundamental problems to do with dire poverty, extreme hunger, and the increasing challenges of climate change. The particular point of news happening today is that there was a deadline put on the new military uh, hunter in Niger, put on them by ECOWAS, which is a kind of regional grouping of West African states led, in this case, by Nigeria, much the most powerful country in the region. And and they basically said that if, if you had not returned to civilian rule by midnight on Sunday, just past, uh, we'll initiate military action. Well, I, I've been checking Twitter. There's no evidence of uh, the Nigerian army swarming over the border. And actually, I think you know, like a lot of these deadlines, these these things are possibly slightly more flexible than they look. But you've got this sort of rising escalation of tensions between the countries that are still democratic in that region and those that have uh, switched over into kind of military dictatorship. And we just need to keep an eye on it as, as the week unfolds. Well, what is that wider impact on the area you know, for other West African countries? Is it going to create conflicts? You know, we've, you've said Niger and Nigeria there, but is it going to create wider conflicts or maybe see other countries you know, witness what is happening and that create situations within their borders differently? Or is it going to create more turmoil for the area at large? Yeah, the entire Sahel region, including Nigeria and, and the, the countries along the coast, have uh, experienced increasing instability over the past decade. A lot of uh, terrorist attacks. You, you've got people have heard of Boko Haram. That's in Nigeria. You've got other groups. You sort of Al Qaeda offshoots, Islamic State offshoots, and in fact, you know uh, that 
deaths from terrorism in that region are higher than anywhere in the world, including you know Afghanistan. Um, so we're talking about a, a really unstable situation. And you've got countries that have always had very fragile governments, states that struggle to deliver basic resources to their populations. And then you add into that mix the challenge of climate change. And, and climate change is hitting that region uh, with particular intensity. The Sahara Desert grows every year. Uh, areas that were once possible to support arable farming no longer possible. So you have a lot of internal migration, people flooding into these mega cities, cities like Lagos and Abidjan. So th these are fundamental uh, challenges facing the sort of viability of some of these states. And, and I think the challenge is that the Western countries, notably France, but also, you know, the UK was involved in Mali, the US and other European countries. We've tended to treat this as a security issue. We've sent in troops. Uh, we, we've, uh, you know, we've seen military operations. And in some respects, it's rather like what happened in Afghanistan. You have decades of military operations, but the country at the end of the day isn't any safer or better run. And the ordinary population uh, offered the opportunity of a military dictatorship. They may not embrace it with great enthusiasm, but they might think, well, living under a democracy hasn't done much for us. So let's see how this works out. And I think wealthy foreign powers intervening in the Sahel region need to find a new way of doing so because it's clear that that kind of military and security operations haven't actually improved the fundamentals. Arthur, thank you for joining me for Start Your Week this morning. Always a pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed the show, remember you can support us on Patreon. For £3 a month, you'll get episodes early and ad-free, as well as a shout-out on this show. Here's Arthur with today's. My thanks to Chris Riley, Joe W and John Wood. Thank you for listening and come back tomorrow for another episode of The Bunker. Start Your Week with The Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis and Arthur Snell. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker Start Your Week is a Podmasters production. <laughs>